We're going to be exploring um, the nature of the gospel uh, and the way that it uh, shall shape us as a community. And today we're starting um, with the, uh, the most important, if you like, the very essence, the very core of the gospel uh, itself and what it means to be a church. We're looking at what it means to be a gospel community. We're going to look at the very essence of what this gospel is, the unique and sheer gift of grace. Like lightning from a clear sky, uh, the sheer and unique core attribute of what it means to even be a Christian, what is distinct about Christianity. Our passage today comes from uh, Ephesians chapter 2, and the Apostle Paul is writing to the church and reminding them of the dimensions, like, like a diamond, all the different dimensions and facets of the gospel, the good news. And he writes in verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of works, so that no one may boast. This is a beautiful and eloquent summary of the unique gospel. Indeed, it is unparalleled in any other worldview, even in the world religions today, and even in secular materialist humanism, and certainly of the philosophies of the time, that our identity and our salvation as humans might come not of anything that we might be obligated to do, but as a sheer gift of uh, a God. This is the essence of the gospel. And when we think about what it means for us to be a gospel community, we can start right at the very beginning of the New Testament. The first book we think written of the New Testament is actually the Gospel of Mark, beautiful gospel. And the very first chapter of Mark gives us this verse. It says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God has come near, repent and believe the gospel. This is the first thing that the first book of the New Testament, the earliest writing we have, says Jesus came proclaiming the gospel. Now, the gospel is quite an, a common term. It's actually a media term in, in the ancient language and in Greek. It was known all over and, and essentially means news. Usually it's used in the context of good news, like a royal announcement, uh, such as uh, an heir uh, has been born. It's an announcement, fantastic, a new heir, a new king has been born. It's a massive stop press, big headline news. Or perhaps the news of a, of a war that's been won far away and the armies will be heading back and, and returning and ahead of time the, the news comes. Fantastic, magnificent, good news. And here it says that Jesus came into Galilee proclaiming this good news and saying that the kingdom of God uh, has now come near and and that something has arrived that changes things for all people, for the people in Galilee, eventually for the whole world. Something has arrived and things are going to be different. A climax has come. What we understand this essentially to be is that the kingdom of God has broken through into this world in a new and unique way. This message, this new and unique way, is essentially the good news 
that through Christ, the power of God's whole kingdom has actually entered history. And that has consequences of renewing the whole world, putting it to right. You see, all the way through, not just in this culture of the people of God, but others too, there has been a crying out for justice. Intrinsically, they knew, and we know today, that something is fundamentally wrong with the world. We feel a fundamental injustice. We feel that something that should be straight has been bent, that people are bent and that powers are bent and people are corrupt and perhaps even ourselves, that there is something fundamentally good about the world that has gone wrong. And this is a fundamental core attribute of justice that I think flows through every human and the Bible teaches it comes from the very heart of God. We know that things should be different to what they are. And we know this even through watching people in conversation. C.S. Lewis once made the observation, he says, you see children playing or adults arguing and, and they'll have a lot to say one to another, but at some stage in their argument they will start appealing to a higher authority. In other words, they'll start saying, that's not fair. Now, on, on what basis are they saying it isn't fair? They're not just saying, I don't like what you've done to me or I don't like what you've said to me. They're saying, that was wrong. In other words, they're kind of measuring what's going on against some measurement somewhere that runs through their mind, their instinct, their very humanity. And he said, this is a clue to meaning in the universe. It's a bit of a clue that somehow even a prisoner in jail who has perhaps committed the most atrocious crimes, if treated badly by a prison guard, will feel unjustly treated. Who are they to claim justice? And yet they will know, hang on, this has been breached. I should get a meal now, or you shouldn't treat me that way. They will appeal to some barometer, some measurement in the universe. And this is a clue to understanding that all of humanity has an impulse of justice. Now, we tend to feel it most acutely when it's been breached upon us, right? And the news every night will have some report from the courts and the cameras will be out the front of the courts and people will come out from the court at the end of a trial and they'll say something along the lines of, justice was served. Or they might say, justice was not served today. And you'll either see in them the peace of justice being served because they were wronged and the judge has said so and made amends. Or they will feel the anguish. It wasn't served. The sentence should have been harsher for what he did to this person or did to me. And so we're very aware of the sense of justice amongst us when it's breached upon us. When someone has broken into your home, you feel wronged. When, when everyone else has been offered a gift, a cup of tea, and, and you've been left out, you feel wronged. What's happened? 
in little things and in big things, we know there is somewhere the rule of justice. And it may be different in different cultures and times, but it's never not there. It exists where there are humans. And the Bible teaches that this is because we are made in the image of God and that God is just. Indeed, God made the world good and made humanity in his character and his character is just. In fact, God is the only truly just one. And the ancient Greek, the word justice and actually righteousness are the same word. And so it talks about the fact that we all feel the barometer of righteousness and unrighteousness around about us, particularly when it's done to us. What we tend to be a little bit more blind to is when our actions breach this standard. We might hear it when someone feeds back to us, you've done me wrong here. But more often than not, there's something inside of us that tends to want to justify our behaviour. Have you ever noticed that? We feel it acutely when it's done to us, but then we want to kind of cover it over, justify it, move the barrier when it comes to our behaviour. And so that gives us a bit of an insight. There's something about the human nature that both knows that justice exists and yet kind of wants to make an exception to it in our case. And if you want to find a better example of this, you'll find it all over social media. Facebook and Twitter are filled with these two parallel statements that are going on at the same time. One of them is, you can't tell me what to do. And the other one is, you can't do that. Do you hear the contradiction? That behaviour was wrong by Donald Trump. That behaviour was wrong by that man or that person. And at the same time, they will say, society can't tell me what to do. The church can't tell me what to do. I should be free to make the choices for myself. And these two great narratives flow through our modern culture. And they're largely unquestioned because they suit our human nature. We want to be able to wag our finger when we see justice breached. And we want to be able to stand up and justify our behaviour when we have done the so-called breaching. We want to move the goalposts and make an exception. But it can't both be true. There either is a standard or there isn't. We either breach it or we don't. And it takes a unique set of circumstances for us to be confronted with the reality of our behaviour, for us to truly see and be reckoned with the truth of the matter. It either takes an enormous cloud of witnesses or some level of justice, and even then we will justify and justify. How do you get an honest mirror upon your own soul? Because the heart is deceitful in all its ways. And in the littlest, smallest details, I find myself in my marriage and other places justifying, excusing, arguing, following lines of logic that wouldn't add up. 
in any other circumstance. That if I was on the other side, I'd be arguing against them and tearing them down. Do you know what I mean? This is the great gift, to some degree at least, of the Bible. Because it is an arbitrary measure which comes and says, there is a line of justice and none are except, exempt from it. It says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It even says that no one is justice. No, not one. No one is righteous. And it sounds judgmental and it sounds harsh, but actually when you think it through logically, it actually to some degree is more truthful. It's saying that injustice pervades all of us and even each of our hearts, that all of creation, including all humans, are tainted. And the Bible calls that taintedness sin. And it says we tend towards it, not away from it. We tend towards it. And it's so easy to see in the behavior of others and in the systems and the world around us. But we are often so blind to it ourselves. Now, there is a way, and there are worldviews which tend to want to help us to get along and manage this sense of justice. And one of the vast and, and, and very ancient ones is a system called karma. Now, karma kind of feels like a good idea on the surface. I remember 20 years ago, the band Savage Garden had a song called Affirmation. And the chorus of that song says, I believe in karma. What you give is what you get returned. And it sounds so positive. Like it sounds like a good greeting card way of saying, you've got to do the right thing. And if you do it, then the universe will give you goodness back. You know what I mean? You just do good and good will come back to you. And it feels like a good quality moral. But actually, if you think it through, it's devastatingly condemning. The song shouldn't be affirmation. It's not an affirmation. It's a condemnation. What you give is what you get returned. Now, this philosophy lies at the heart of both Buddhism and Hinduism. And it essentially says your behavior adds up to your treatment. That what you do is what you get back. And you do a good deed and goodness will come back to you. You do a bad deed and it will visit upon you. And it sounds a little bit like what you sow is what you will reap. Although, it's bad news for everyone. It's certainly not good news for me. Jesus didn't come into Galilee saying, the good news is you are going to reap what you sow. He comes into my life and tells me, Tim, you are going to get back what you do. I don't know about you. I'm stuffed. I mean, maybe you're more righteous than me. I know you think you're more righteous than me. I know I think I'm more righteous than you. That's part of our unrighteousness, right? If I'm going to get back what I've done, I'm lost. I'm wrecked. Karma is... It's, it's, it's a weight chained to us, thrown us into a river. You can't escape that because your heart, you don't even, you can't even know the truth about yourself, let alone your motives. My behavior, I don't know what I've done. I know some things that I've done. I'm not, I'm not going to go into them this morning. 
they're all forgiven now, but that's the end of the... (laughs) I know the things that I've not done that I should. Am I going to get punished for those too? The Apostle Paul says, I think this is so accurately, in fact, so refreshingly. One of the hardest things in the world is to have someone tell you the truth. And what I find the Apostle Paul saying is so refreshing. He says in in the book of Romans, he says, that which I should do, I don't do. And that which I don't want to do, that I do. And friends, if we can be honest, even in our minds, isn't that your story too? If what I'm getting is karma, I'm, I'm not going to live a life of freedom. I'm not going to live a life certainly of salvation. And certainly the message of karma is not to me good news. And so you need something else. You need something beyond karma, something outside of karma, something that kind of breaks the rules. Because if I'm going to have good news, if I'm going to have life and life more abundantly, then I need something more than I deserve. I need to reap something that I didn't sow. And this is where Christianity brings in something quite unique. There were a group of theologians and philosophers that were sitting around, scholars in Oxford many years ago in Magdalen College, and they were discussing the differences between different religions and different philosophical worldviews. And they got to Christianity and they said, well, what's different about Christianity? It's got this and it's got that. And they go back and forward and back and forward. And then C.S. Lewis arrived at the meeting and he walked in and they said, Jack, as they called him, what's different about Christianity? And he goes, oh, that's easy. Grace. Grace is the unique thing. Grace is what lives outside of karma. Because grace is unmerited favour. And the very core and the very foundation of Christianity is actually something that you can't earn. It's a favour beyond that which you can work for or even buy or purchase or even, to some degree, hope for. It's beyond even justice. Now, this is an interesting aspect because I said before that justice comes from the very character of God. God is the just one, the only just one, the righteous one. If there is a God there and our creation is fused with a sense of justice, then it comes from the character of God. But something else lives in the character of God as well. The very nature of God is not just justice, but love. The Bible says that God is perfect love. In fact, love and our definition and understanding of love comes also from the very character of God. And when you mix justice and you mix love, this is when you get something called grace. You can't have one without the other. A world with just justice and no love is a tyrannical world. A world where everyone gets what they deserve. 
A world where, you know, if you say, if someone hits you in the right eye, get them in the left as well. Well, it turns everyone blind. Where everyone, no one can pay for what they do. But also, paradoxically, a world of love without justice is also not a desirable world. This is where an illustration from parenting is helpful. I think there are sometimes some idealistic parents that think they are going to have a loving household, not a just, wrathful one. Perhaps they happen to grow up in a home where there was a parent who was all about the justice with not enough love. And so they decide, we are going to have a household and I'm going to bring up my children and it's going to be about love and not that other stuff. What they soon find... (laughs) is that a lack of justice means a lack of boundaries. And it actually means that the core human nature, this taintedness within the life of even a child, perhaps especially a child, runs rampant in a way that love, if it doesn't have boundaries and a sense of justice, can't handle. A child who receives nothing but love and no justice, actually doesn't receive love. They only receive affirmation. And that means the worst parts and the tainted parts of their character also receive affirmation, which means they grow up increasingly into a selfish and tyrannical person. Love itself, if it is true love, actually invites justice. It invites boundaries. It invites an understanding of right and of wrong. And so what we need to some degree to grow up a healthy child is a balance of justice and a balance of love mixed together. And this is where we get this beautiful concoction of grace. From the very character of God, God's core attributes of love and justice, we find something else is possible. Something that we can't do except when we mimic God. I want to show a video now, and it goes for just four minutes. This is a video that went viral uh, about a week ago around the world. It's of a young man um, who, his name is Brandt, and he's giving a victim impact statement um, at the trial uh, of a woman called Amber, uh, who shot and killed uh, his brother She mistakenly walked into the wrong apartment, thinking it was her own, and confronted by Broman, I think his name is, the young man, she shot him dead, carrying a gun. She's found guilty, and she's sentenced to 10 years in jail. And this is the sentencing hearing where the young man's brother had the opportunity to speak. I want you to listen carefully. To what he had to say. I'm not gonna say I hope you rot and die, just like my brother did. But I see, I, I personally want the best for you. And I, I wasn't gonna ever say this in front of my family or anyone. But I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best. For you, 
Because I know that's what that's exactly what both of them would want you to do. And the best would be give your life to Christ. I don't know if this is possible, but can can I give her a hug, please? Please. Yes. incredible moment. Now let me give a sidebar comment and say there are aspects of forgiveness that are complex in the midst of this. Sometimes forgiveness and grace can be used as a denial of the truth. But this young man is not denying or covering over a truth. It is good and right that it comes before the law of the land. If you want to read more about that, I've written about that in other places pretty comprehensively. But with these things followed through, grace is not less than justice. It's more than justice. And when we talk as the people of God about God being just and we speak about injustices in our society, we are calling our society to something that is a minimum standard of behavior. Slavery is injustice. There are unjust things around about us, and we call our standard, our community to a minimum standard. But it is not a maximum standard. Before when justice is mixed with love, something outside of it is possible. And this is a beautiful snippet of it here. A redemption is possible. A grace is possible. Another economy starts coming into play. And in this economy, people can be scooped and captured and their lives are freed from karma and freed from consequences and freed into a new way and into a new life, into a graciousness that comes from the very kindness and gracious character of God. It's not a denial of what has gone wrong. In fact, the gospel is utterly realistic about the sin of the world and the sin in my heart. It's totally realistic. But the good news of the gospel is actually, yes, that we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. But at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That is the gospel. And friends, if we are to be a gospel community, if we are to be as a church a gospel community, that's what we've got. In essence, actually, that's all we've got. Let me make one more comment. There are two enemies of the gospel, two enemies of grace. The first one I've alluded to It's irreligion. That is, the idea that I should be able to do whatever I want to do. This is an idea that of total relevance and relativity. Just do whatever you feel. And something in my heart would like that. I would like to get away and be able to do what I want. And on that side, 
the gospel is kind of offensive because it is realistic about me and my heart and my actions and my life. It does call me to a repentance. It does name my unrighteousness and asks me to bring nothing but that unrighteousness before Christ and receive his mercy. It does mean then saying and admitting, yeah, I need that. And that's humbling. But there is another enemy of the gospel as well. And it's not irreligion, it's religion. And I tell you, I'm guilty of this one too. It's the idea that actually Christ doesn't just call me to bring my unrighteousness before him for repentance, but also to bring my righteousness. For there is a self-justifying, works-orientated person inside of me who likes to think that my status comes from the things that I do get right, even if I sometimes admit that I don't get everything right. And this is particularly a temptation for those of us that have been Christians for a little while, that we might slip into a mode of being where we lean into our righteousness rather than the righteousness that comes as a sheer gift unmerited from God. For those of you familiar with the story of the prodigal son, we might look upon others as being the younger brother who comes having sinned back home to the father, but we forget how quickly we can turn into and slide into the older brother who thinks he has done all the right things but has done them for all the wrong reasons. And if now you think, well, I'm not really one of those, well, then you are very much that second one. (laughs) For friends, whatever our status and barometer and whatever the, the deal, the person in our head that we're doing deals with about the way we live, we are searching for a righteousness from somewhere and a freedom and an escape from being judged from somewhere. And the gospel comes to us. And for us to be as a gospel community, it's to come again and again around this and this alone. The beautiful and abiding truth that by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not the result of works, so that nobody can boast. Friends, grace is what you get when you take the two most powerful forces in the universe of justice and love, and you bring them together. And that is what the Lord Jesus has done for us. Jesus came into this world to save us. There's nothing we can do about it but trust and believe in that fact if and when it makes sense to us, if it haven't already. That's the core of who we are. That's the defining aspect of what it means to be a Christian. That is the thing that makes us a church, not a community group. Because we have at the centre this Jesus, and Jesus is the content of the gospel. A God who loves us. A God who died for us. A God who has given us life and life more abundantly. If we are wanting to receive it. Let's pray. Loving and gracious God, that's all we need to say. 
Lord, we come before you now, and there are those amongst us that perhaps want to say for the first time yes to a God who has said yes to us. There are perhaps others amongst us who have said yes before but can feel that sense in our heart that we have leaned back on our own works, that we would like a few things in the bank of which we might boast. But we're reminded again and again of the sheer gift of your graciousness to us. And Lord, we now say in our hearts, yes, and thank you. We need grace and we need nothing else. And that's what I'm counting on. And so, Lord, I pray by your spirit now you would minister, speak even, and bring assurance in our hearts. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.